welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. This week, we're joined by GJC President Akila Radha Krishnan and legal fellow Kristen Smith, who will be explaining the legality of Trump's policies of refugee detention at the border. Thank you so much for joining us today. To get started, can you just give us a little bit of context about what's happening right now at the border? And how is this unique in terms of U.S. immigration policy? So to start, under the parole directive issued by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security in 2009, that directive said that individuals who demonstrate a credible fear in their interview have the right to an individualized determination of release while their asylum case is pending. And those who demonstrate that they are not a flight risk nor a danger to the public should be released, recognizing that continued detention in those cases is not in the public interest. It's notable that a recent court case found that Before the most recent change in immigration detention policy, 90% of asylum seekers were paroled versus almost 0% now. So you can see that there's been a big change in how that directive has been implemented. So then I'll note that during the Obama administration, there was also an increased use of detention in response to a 2014 surge in the number of unaccompanied children and family units crossing the border. The Obama administration discontinued the use of detention as a general deterrent for illegal immigration in 2015 in response to a series of lawsuits and complaints about that policy and about the detention conditions that women and children were held under. So in the most recent changes to immigration detention policy, there was an April memo and then a more public announcement in May 2018 where Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy. This policy meant that the administration would now prosecute all parents who cross the border illegally as a crime under the Immigration and Nationality Act for illegal entry. That crime is a misdemeanor and it carries a six month maximum imprisonment. So that means that you know, under that crime, parents who cross the border could be in prison up to six months. The policy also meant that parents and children would be separated pending the resolution of their case for illegal entry. When children are separated, they go into the custody of a separate federal agency. And as you've probably seen in the news, there's been a lot of chaos about where those children are, their ability to communicate with their family, and skepticism and documented trouble about actually reuniting children and their parents. So the policy wasn't supposed to apply to asylum seekers at ports of entry initially, but it's been well documented that asylum seekers who crossed the border illegally were detained under this zero tolerance policy. And I'll note also that human rights organizations and attorneys have reported the detention of asylum seekers and separation of families back as far as summer and fall of 2017. So this has been something that the Trump administration has been doing, but made more official and the default as of this spring. Also quickly mention in June 2018, Attorney General Sessions issued an opinion stating that most victims of personal crime do not fit the definition of a particular social group and therefore will not qualify for asylum. Just to note that there's been many other actions taken by the administration 
as part of a larger effort to impede the success of asylum claims in the United States this spring and summer. So most recently, in response to a lot of outcry about the family separation practice and this new zero tolerance policy, President Trump signed an executive order on June 20th that purported to end family separations. The executive order still says the administration's policy is to initiate proceedings to enforce criminal provisions, including those of illegal entry in the Immigration and Nationality Act. It also says the administration's policy is to maintain family unity, including by detaining alien families together where appropriate and consistent with law and available resources. Lastly, it asked DOJ to file a request with a U.S. District Court to modify the settlement agreement in Flores v. Sessions, which is commonly known as the Flores Settlement, in order to permit the secretary to detain alien families together through the length of their criminal proceedings for improper entry or, it says, for other immigration proceedings. And a quick note that the the Flores Settlement regulates what kind of detention children are allowed to be held under and what that detention can look like. It recognizes that children must be held in the least restrictive setting and a setting that's appropriate. And it also determined that children must be released without delay and instituted a 20-day deadline based on the principle of family unity and how that should be protected. It's also been previously held that family detention facilities do not comply with the requirements of that settlement. The executive order also doesn't include a plan to reunite already separated families, and over 2,300 children have already been separated based on this policy. Again, as we've seen in the news, there's been a lot of chaos in determining how those families can be reunited, and not many of them have been so far. Also in June, President Trump tweeted a call for deportations immediately with no judges or court cases saying that we cannot allow people to invade our country, and when someone comes in, we must immediately, with no judges or court cases, bring them back to where they came from. This obviously brings into concern due process violations. The idea that we could deport immigrants without a judge or a court case is very problematic. So then there have been two recent developments in the courts about these policies that I'll quickly mention. First, on June 26th, the federal judge in California ordered U.S. immigration authorities to reunite separated families on the border within certain time frames based on the children's age. And just yesterday on July 2nd, a federal district court in D.C. issued a preliminary injunction ordering the government to conduct individual determinations of eligibility for parole based on its own 2009 policy. That's the parole directive I mentioned earlier. The court agreed with plaintiffs that the government was using detention as a default policy and that parole consideration was being nearly uniformly denied without individual consideration. The plaintiffs in that case had been in detention for a year and a half and two years after having been granted asylum while the government appealed their cases. So people are definitely fighting back, but a lot of concerns remain about how the policy is going to play out in practice on the border. I think what we've seen is an extreme iteration of the Trump administration's anti-immigrant policies. What we've seen at the border are people who are fleeing their countries for a variety of reasons be turned away and not allowed entry into the United States, being forced to cross it illegally. When they do come over, they're being put into cruel and inhuman facilities. The children are being separated, kept away from their parents. And, you know, as we've all seen the visuals, they are kept in literal cages. And so I think that the images have been striking in calling attention to these policies. However, this is a larger construct of U.S. immigration policy that started far before President Trump. And I think it's important to contextualize and understand that what they are doing is incredibly illegal. 
and immoral, but it's also been underpinned by years of U.S. immigration policies, including those that flourished under the Obama administration. So the issue of child detention and family separation, you touched on that a little bit, and it's been all over the news. Is this legal under international law? I mean, it seems like it would constitute child abuse. Does that, is that accurate? And what are the international standards that we should be complying with? So unsurprisingly, the U.S. hasn't signed all of the relevant treaties that would give us the international standards. But there are a few that we are party to that provide important definitions and constructions of what rights we need to give not only to immigrants, but to anyone within our borders. And the first and perhaps most relevant is the 1951 Refugee Convention. It defines what a refugee is. And incredibly importantly, It puts forward a principle, a principle that's called the principle of non-refoulement, which means that you cannot send people back to face the threats that they left. And so really in the context of asylum law, this is what grants people the protection, the ability to leave their country and seek refuge elsewhere. And it brings them protection because a country like what the U.S. is doing right now is you can't just turn the way away at the border without process. When someone presents as an asylum seeker because they have a credible fear, you need to bring them into the country and allow them to make their case and make an individualized determination as to their status. There's also other human rights treaties that come into play here. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which the U.S. is a party to, provides a range of protections, including the freedom of movement, the right to be free from cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, And important protections around due process. Kristen mentioned earlier that a lot of what is happening with these various policies is the deprivation of due process. There is inadequate representation. People's court cases aren't being determined on an individualized basis. They don't know the charges ahead of them. They don't know how long they're going to be detained for, when they're the next step in the process will be. All of these are firmly established, both in the Constitution, right? We have due process protections in the Constitution, and those are bolstered by the international protections. And then there's a couple others. You mentioned, does this constitute the issue of child abuse? International experts who've condemned the policy have said actually that the policies, they haven't used the words child abuse, they've actually used the words cruel and human degrading treatment or even potentially torture. And those are protections that are contained, again, within the ICCPR, but also under the Convention Against Torture, to which the United States is a party. And it's important to note that all of these treaties have important underlying values that also define how things should be interpreted. So one is the principle of non-discrimination. The idea that all of these rights need to be given to people equally and not defined or be given different categories based on certain areas. Another one is that there is a very strong underlayer of what these protections look like for children and your duties are enhanced. So when it looks like what constitutes cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment, when you look at the standards that would befit a child versus an adult, they are different. And so I think that unquestionably what the country is doing violates international standards, international obligations, and it's been wildly called so. So, you know, just recently, a broad coalition of international experts who work at the United Nations, special rapporteurs on various issues, including on the rights of migrants, on xenophobia, have all called this policy illegal and called for the U.S. to change it. There's another layer, in addition to the United Nations, the U.S., as a member of the Organization of American States, is also subject to regional considerations. And that's actually really important here 
because this particular policy is, you know, separated from things like the Muslim ban. It's really about people coming from Central America. So not only are we bound under this treaty, but the people that are coming and the countries that they're coming from are also a part of the same regional system. In fact, recently, the national human rights institutions of five countries, including Mexico, El Salvador, and Honduras, filed a complaint against the United States at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The Inter-American Commission has spoken out against this issue multiple times, has made strong statements, including that detention is never in the best interests of a child. And in fact, in April, at the urging of human rights organizations, they held a hearing on the issue of the U.S. policies, and the U.S. government didn't even bother to show up. They didn't send a representative, and so that's also another stark reminder of how this administration is treating these larger protections. But that doesn't mean that we can't be held accountable under them. In addition to defining a refugee, the 1951 Refugee Convention, which is the backbone of the U.S. asylum system, also requires in Article 31 that states shall not impose penalties on account of illegal entry or presence on refugees who present themselves to authorities and show good cause for their illegal entry and presence. So the protections of the Refugee Convention are not differentiated based on how an immigrant enters the country. And I think that's really important because the United States is applying these procedures to people who enter illegally and submitting them to criminal prosecution. But that is not contemplated under the Refugee Convention. And the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, who is tasked with monitoring the implementation of that convention has reiterated many times that every person has the right to seek asylum and that seeking asylum is not an unlawful act. And it's important to remember that these people are fleeing very difficult circumstances, persecution. They come with lots of issues that might affect their ability to approach authorities. As we also noted, U.S. border authorities are actually turning away asylum seekers, which forces them to come illegally when they're really fleeing difficult circumstances. So international law actually protects against this differentiated treatment that underpins the administration's new policy as well. Right. So I think what you're seeing is violations almost at every level, violations at points of entry along the border, which don't allow you to turn people away with that process, violations once people have crossed the border by holding them in indefinite detention, charging them with and engaging them in a criminal process, which is also not permitted, separating families, the conditions of the detention facilities themselves. And so there are international standards that apply to all each of these layers, and we are clearly in violation of every single one. So when discussing these issues, I feel like I hear the terms refugee, asylum seeker, migrant, and I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners just what the difference is between these designations and what are the implications of those differences? Sure. And that's a really important question because those are different categories of people that require different levels of protection under international law. So I'll start with a refugee. Refugees are defined and afforded specific protections by international law, of course, based on the fact that they lack protection in their own countries. That's why they're fleeing to begin with. So the universal definition of a refugee is set forth in the 1951 Refugee Convention in Article 1. 
A refugee is a person who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion, is outside the country of nationality and is unable or unwilling to avail himself of protections in that country owing to fear. Refugees face serious consequences, generally, if returned to their home country, up to and including death. So states are internationally responsible for not returning them where their life or freedom is threatened. That's the provision on non-refoulement that we already discussed. An asylum seeker, on the other hand, is a person who is seeking sanctuary and protection in another country, but whose claim has not yet been processed. So they haven't yet been recognized as a refugee and given that status. And it's worth noting again that everyone has the right to seek asylum under the Refugee Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so while all refugees were at some point asylum seekers, not all asylum seekers will officially become refugees based on whether or not they successfully achieved that status. A migrant, on the other hand, is a broader term that refers to anyone who moves from one country to another, but is not necessarily because of direct threats of persecution. Migrants are often moving to seek better economic opportunity or fleeing poverty or other serious problems in their home countries or are seeking to reunite with family members or to flee natural disasters. They may or may not have permission to be in another country. And it's important to remember that even though migrants may not have refugee status and the protections that come with it under international law, they're still entitled to general protections under human rights law. And in this specific context, I would note that the international experts from the UN who spoke out about this issue made a few important observations about what the population that's currently impacted looks like. So what they said is that most of the migrants detained are asylum seekers from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras who have fled their countries because of insecurity, violence, and violations of their human rights. That's incredibly important because that's something that really designates the idea that most of the people who are seeking this are potential asylum seekers, are people who are potentially refugees. They also make the point that the vast majority of these migrants are indigenous peoples or people belonging to ethnic or racial groups that are categorized as non-white in the United States, and that the executive order's effect on children and their families is devastation reserved largely for indigenous and non-white immigrants. And I think that's another important component if we go back to the requirements of international law and the requirement of non-discrimination. So what they're really pointing out here is that there are all of these general categories, but if we look at the current population that we're talking about and that's being impacted is that they're likely many of them are going to be those who are asking for asylum and would be deemed refugees, and that the population is one that deserves special protection against discrimination. So recently, Trump issued an executive order, potentially bowing to public pressure, about stopping separating children from their parents. What are the implications of this executive order? And on the whole, does it seem like a good thing for migrant families or potentially dangerous? So to start with, as we noted when talking about the general context of these recent policies, family detention facilities have previously been held not to comply with legal requirements for how children should be treated in detention, including being released quickly. So that's going to be an issue still under the executive order that would allow parents and children to be detained together. So another big problem is that the executive order aims to allow detention for the length of immigration proceedings, which in the case of asylum seekers could be years that they would be left in detention. As of 2018, the immigration court backlog in the United States is almost 700,000 cases. 
In New York, for example, that means there's almost 96,000 cases pending currently with an average wait time of 688 days. So just in New York, that means a long time that families could be held in detention under conditions that have previously been held by courts to not comply with the requirements for holding children and families. And I would add that Kristen's mentioned the conditions of the facilities themselves are important. And documentation that exists now has demonstrated that the facilities that we're talking about here, not just for children, but the family detention facilities themselves, are horrendous. So imagine being placed in those conditions for the 20 days that may be allowed under Flores versus indefinite, as Kristen's saying, it could be two, three years in those facilities. And, you know, international courts and other places like the European Court of Human Rights, they looked at detention facilities in Greece and they found that the facilities themselves violated the right to humane treatment. And so the executive order perhaps addressed the most visceral component, which was the images of those children, or even worse, perhaps the recording that was released of the crying children being separated from their parents. But at its core, it doesn't address at all the issues with the broader policy. And just to build on Akilah's point, maybe give a concrete example. Human rights organizations, for example, have found that Healthcare in immigration detention facilities is substandard and can even lead to death in some cases when healthcare is neglected. They've also found that there are widespread allegations of child abuse in detention facilities. And so we know that mass immigration detention based on past practice in the United States opens the United States up to liability for a host of other human rights violations. So do either of you have any final thoughts or any ideas that you would like to leave our listeners with that you think we should know? So I think that one thing to keep in mind is, um, and it's very hard with this administration sometimes, is that this is part and parcel of their larger strategy when it comes to immigration. It's tied to the Muslim ban. It's tied to Jeff Sessions' decision somewhat recently to strip or make more difficult the ability to claim domestic violence for women as a basis for asylum. It's tied to denying reproductive health services to people who are held within detention facilities by the Office of Refugees, including access to abortion services, which the courts have found to be a violation of of those women's rights, even though they are immigrants and they are not American citizens. And so I think that we really need to make sure that the threads are drawn across this. And I guess not to forget the wall, um, if it ever gets built. But, you know, it's a part of the xenophobia, the misogyny that really characterizes every step of what this administration wants to do and tries to do. And it feels somewhat hopeless sometimes, right? It feels like, well, the Supreme Court just held the Muslim ban constitutional. What can we do? How is the U.S. ever going to be held accountable? And I think that you can be held accountable. So going back to the idea of indefinite detention, another context in which the U.S. was responsible for indefinite detention was in Guantanamo. And the U.S. was found by our Supreme Court to be in violation of our obligations that are Geneva Conventions. And the Supreme Court said you cannot hold even potential terrorists in indefinite detention without letting them know what their charges are in these dire conditions. And I think it goes to show that it is possible to hold people accountable and why, as we slowly roll these domestic policies back, why the international standards are so incredibly important for setting a metric for what the U.S. does. 
And just to build on that, one of my big takeaways is that there are a lot of due process violations that are going to result from this executive order and just general concerns about the way that the administration and its recent policies treats this right to seek asylum in the United States. So it's worth noting that the percentage of asylum claims that are denied has risen over the past few years and that there's a big difference in whether an asylum claim succeeds based on one's nationality. So that just is to point out that asylum claims are really difficult to prove to begin with. And, you know, immigration courts function differently than we think of U.S. courts functioning. For example, immigrants don't have the right to an attorney. That's really important to remember, even though studies have found over and over again that access to an attorney and being represented is the most important thing for determining success in an asylum claim. And this includes children. So this includes toddlers who can be required to go through a deportation proceeding or any other type of immigration proceeding by themselves with no attorney, no representation, nor their family. And just as a lawyer, that is really important to me to point out and for us to remember. I think according to Human Rights First, only one in 10 applicants wins their case for asylum without lawyers. That's a really low percentage. And with lawyers, they're five times more likely to do so. And just to remember that keeping asylum seekers and immigrants in detention impedes their access to a lawyer. Different organizations and court cases have found that over and over again. So it's just something to remember when we're talking about the mass detention of asylum seekers. To learn more about the intersection between U.S. immigration policy and international law, check out our show notes at www.globaljusticecenter.net. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend or rate and comment on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining